So yeah, thank you, Sue, for uh, reading the passage. I don't know why I got this passage, maybe because I'm German and then I get an excuse <laughs> to read names wrong, I don't know. But yeah, nevertheless. Yeah, it's, it's, it's an important passage for various reasons and hopefully we can find out today why it's important. Okay, um, last week Ben spoke about um, Noah and how he didn't live up to the expectations that God had of him and the people had of him. Um, Noah was not the answer to the problem of the people, to the problem of sin, and he did not go on to multiply and fill the earth as God told him to. Yeah, if, if you don't have a Bible, maybe you can get one. I don't know if everybody has a Bible. Sorry. That, that's something I wanted to say at the beginning as well. It's something I think we can keep from Ross. It was really good. That if, does everybody have a Bible? If not, just put your hand up and you might get one. Wow, everybody's got one, I think. Cool. Cool. Um, the, then uh, Ben spoke about the reality of, noms, uh, noms, of Noah's humanity and the, uh, the normality that he showed by uh, sinning. He got drunk and um, used the good fruit that God gave him in the soil um, to numb himself, possibly from the pain that he felt by just maybe missing people, maybe just the devastation that he's seen before. Um, and then Ham, Noah's son, found him naked in his tent. And instead of humbly and gently covering his na the nakedness of his father, he went and told his brothers about it. And the other two sons of Noah, Shem and Japheth, dealt with the issue properly then. And then Noah wakes up, possibly with a headache from his um, hangover, and he curses Ham's son Canaan um, to be a slave to everyone. And he blessed Shem and Japheth with beautiful prophecies that you can uh, read in chapter 9 of Genesis. And we still profit or benefit from these, these prophecies that God spoke to Shem and Japheth, because as Ben explained it last week so beautifully, um, we are meeting in the tents of Shem in, in um, a figurative, uh, in a figure of speech. And now we are um, we are part of God's family. We share the blessing, the salvation, and communion with God, uh, which come through Jesus Christ, who was a descendant of Shem. And today's sermon will look a little bit different from uh, most of our sermons, where we go verse by verse. It's mostly to do with the text and also because I can't pronounce most of the names. <laughs> but um, what we'll do is we'll, we'll have a look at, um, at these nations and the first movements they make, uh, these different clans, and then we'll have a look at two characters that get a special mention and hopefully draw some conclusions and some um, applications for our lives today. So one thing that I want to mention at first is when we read uh, verse 1, it says, um, in the generations of the sons of Noah. Uh, the NIV says, this is the account of Shem, Ham, and Japheth, Noah's sons. There are 10 of those sentences throughout Genesis, and you can split Genesis into, same, uh, into 10 fractions that way. It's whenever there's something new, a new account comes, it's, it will say, these are the generations of. So it starts in Genesis... Um, 2 verse 4 where it says these are the generations of the heavens and the earth 
And the last one is Genesis 37, verse 2, where it says, these are the generations of Jacob. And so it's God um, slowly narrowing down the line that he speaks about, or the people that he speaks about. So in the text that we're reading today, this is the account of the sons of Noah, who had children after they left the ark. Um, this is the account only of the sons, so there must have been daughters as well. I'm sure that these guys had, but these, they only recount the sons here. And it's most likely not all of the sons that these sons of Noah, John, uh, Shem, Ham, and Japheth had. Um, and it's only those who were for some reason significant, or God felt they were significant for us to know, or for the Jews to know. Maybe I'll just pray, I feel a bit nervous and stumbling over my words, I can't even read. Father, we thank you that you love us. We thank you for your word today. We thank you for um, Genesis chapter 10. There is uh, maybe a passage that we don't read often, we don't hear about often, but um, I pray that you'd help me today to get my words out, to get out what you've prepared in my heart to speak and um, help us to have receiving hearts to receive your message and be changed by it. Amen. Thank you. Sorry. <laughs> So let's have a look at uh, Japheth first. That's the first. Uh, that's verse two to verse five. Um, first, we introduce to Japheth and seven of his sons and seven of his grandsons, and they moved towards the sea. So most likely, where this has happened is somewhere in the Middle East, Iraq, Iran area. So they kind of moved most likely towards the um, Mediterranean Sea. Um, some suggest that they've moved all the way over to Europe and the wildernesses of Europe. Um, but it is difficult to know where they went and, and to actually really find out this guy went to this place and so on. There's some, some theories and if you're into all this stuff, you can go and read and research yourself. Um, I've done some research and um, there's one gene biblical genealogist who suggests that we can have all these ideas and historical accounts and maybe they're right, maybe they're not. We have no way of proving it. And so there's no point in trying to figure out where everybody went. Supposedly one of the guys went to Wales and, <laughs> and so on. So we don't know. Maybe they did, maybe they didn't. What we can, um, what we do know though is that the Hebrew word for Greek people is Javan or Yavan. And that goes throughout all of the Old Testament. And so, most likely, that's the guy who went to Greece and stayed there, his, his children did. Um, according to um, the... For, uh, yeah, uh, let me just leave this out, this is not important. But anyway, Japheth's sons probably moved towards Europe and, um, and all this area. And they, they founded their um, kingdoms there. Then we go into Ham's sons, which is a bit longer, the Hamites. And from verse 6 all the way to verse 20. Um, remember, Ham is the guy who disrespected his father, Nom, uh, Noah. I don't know why I keep saying Nom. I probably miss my wife. Uh, he disrespected his, his father, Noah. And from him came Cush who um, becomes Ethiopia, 
or the people of Ethiopia, um, Egypt, yeah, I don't have to explain what Egypt is, put, um, there's some theories of what people they were, but um, we don't know exactly who they are, and they don't seem to be showing up in the Bible as frequently as the other guys. And his fourth son, Canaan, um, who was cursed by Noah and who would be a cause of trouble for Israel throughout the history and even up to our days today. The Canaanites or people who live there cause trouble for God's people. Cush, so Ethiopia moved to, into Africa and they are probably the first people who moved into the African continent and um, yeah, started their kingdom in there. Egypt was kind of on the border, if you look at the, at the map, between Africa and Asia. And then Canaan is in the land that um, we know today as Israel or Palestine, depending on your political views, I guess. Um, and a little side note, you can read a lot of the names. You have the ending im, I am. That's always an indication in the Hebrew that it's a plural. So when it says here the like Egypt in verse 13, it says Egypt fathered Ludim and Anim and so on. It's basically like saying, and he fathered the Borns and the Kinseys and the Mills and the Seahorns and, and so on. So basically it's not just a specific name, he just says these people. And so in Canaan's list we find a lot of people that end with Eid. And some of them you might recognize, like the Jebusites, Amorites, Girgashites, and so on. These are the people that will live in Canaan and they will be the people who will be... Um, kicked out of the land by the, by the Isra Isra Israelis afterwards. And if you have a Bible app or you want to look it up in a concordance, you can go and find these people and find out where they lived in the country of Israel and how they related to, to them later. So then we have the Shem's sons, and they are um, listed from verse 21 all the way down to verse 30. Oh, yeah, verse 31, actually. And interestingly, Shem is described as the father of all the children of Eber and as the elder brother of Japheth. And um, the reason why he's called the father of all the children of Eber is because Eber will later, or will be the, um, the name that Hebrew comes from. Abram will be the first to be called Hebrew, and that goes all the way back to this his forefather called Eber. So we see five of uh, Shem's sons recorded here, and two have their sons recorded again. Again, Aram was the first son who was called, uh, Aram's first son was called Uz. And if you remember last year's reading plan towards the end when you get to Hebrew, um, Job, uh, not to Hebrew, to Job, Job was a man from Uz. So there you find us. So he was most likely a son of Aram or a descendant of Aram. Um, Shem had other sons. Uh, one of them was called Arpashad, Arpakshad, um, who is considered to be the father of all the Chaldeans. And they lived in the Middle East, today's uh, Iraq and Iran. And one of his sons was called um, Eber. And he had two sons, one with lots of kids and one with a special name. So each one of these uh, short genealogies ends with the same sentence, and maybe you notice it, maybe not, but it ends um, in 
In verse 5, we read, From these, the maritime people came, spread out into the territories by the clans with the nations, each with their own language. Then um, it's in verse 20, These are the sons of Ham, by their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations. And verse 31, These are the sons of Shem, by their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations. Why Japheth's list or verse is slightly different, I don't know. You can have speculations, and maybe there will be a, group, um, a question for the house groups regarding that, and you can think about it already. But we can have theories why it is different, but who knows? We might not find out until we get to heaven. Um, in conclusion, we find that these genealogies have four categories. There's their lands, they moved to their lands, they moved, they had their own languages, they were their own clans and their own nations. Um, God had commanded Noah in Genesis 9.1 and said, Be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth. And this is the beginning of his command happening. They finally move out and do something about it. Um, and as we hear in the text, or in the talk next week about um, Babel, We'll find out more about how it happened and um, how they needed a little prod from God to actually get on with it. And it's interesting that you can see a parallel to the church here. Um, the church was gold, uh, told to go to all the nations. Jesus said, go from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to all the nations. But even after they received the Holy Spirit, they stayed in Jerusalem and um, wouldn't move out. At least most of them wouldn't. But God had to kind of force them to do that. And um, an old friend of mine used to say, if the church doesn't follow Acts 1.8, Acts 8.1 will happen. Acts 1.8 is go into all the world and preach the gospel. Acts 8.1 is this is the beginning of a great persecution. And sometimes God has to force his will to happen. It's not a nice thing. It's better if we just follow him right away. It might save us some some trouble. So, additionally to the sons of Noah, there are two gentlemen with a special mention, and both have a, some kind of mystery around them. And we don't know much about them, but we do know that God put them into this text for a reason, and um, it is necessary that they were recorded in these accounts. And um, just this week I was reminded of um, 2 Timothy 3.16, where it says, All Scripture is God-breathed, breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So even these, this list of names, even these guys that we don't know about and that if you go online you can find all kinds of theories about them, all kinds of stories and some may be true, some may be completely made up. Well in my research I found some wacky stuff about them. I won't share with you, so don't even ask me about it. I, I want to just forget about it. But there's some stuff out there that people have made up and made, yeah, just thought up and think they're clever, but they're not. So the first special mention that we have here is um, a man called Nimrod. And that's from verse 7 to verse 12. And some of you may recognize the name from the Looney Tune cartoons. Bugs Bunny calls um, the hunter... Elmerford a Nimrod every time he manages to escape or outwit 
the poor old hunter who's trying to get him and just doesn't manage to do it. And he basically calls him a fool or an idiot, but that's not the actual meaning of the word Nimrod. Um, the actual meaning of the, ver of the name Nimrod is rebel or murderer. The Hebrew root just has three letters there, um, M, R, and D. And funnily enough, even murder in English has the same root letters. <laughs> so, um, yeah, this is Nimrod. Where am I here? It is interesting also to notice that it says here first in verse 6 says, Ham had these sons, Cush, Egypt, Put, and Canaan. And then in verse 8, we read about Nimrod. It, sa it says, oh no, it says Canaan, Cush uh, fathered Nimrod. Yeah, that's right, Cush fathered Nimrod. So we know that Cush had more sons than just the four that we were mentioned at the beginning. And we don't know how many, but we can assume that most of them had more children than just um, the, the children that were mentioned here. So again, um, Nimrod's name stems from the Hebrew root Marad, which means to rebel. And an interesting side note again, the name Mordecai in the book of Esther has the same root as Nimrod, rebel, and Mordecai was a rebel in a good way. He stood up to um, Haman, who wanted all, the, all Jews and everyone to worship, worship him or to give him honor, and he wouldn't. But he, he stood up as a good rebel. So we don't know exactly why Cush named his son Rebel, but if we look back, he's, um, he, they kind of seem to be the black sheep in the family, the whole Cush family. Because he, he was the one who went in and saw Noah naked and then just talked about it, laughed about it, made a joke about it. And so it's not really surprising why he would call his son Rebel. Uh, verse 8 states that Nimrod was the first on earth to be a mighty man. And um, the word mighty man here, I thought maybe that's an interesting thing, but it just means a mighty man. It can, be, it can mean a warrior. It can mean um, somebody who's a tyrant. But it's also used of God, the word mighty. In um, Joshua 1.14, um, yeah, they're called... Warriors are called mighty warriors or mighty men. Then God speaks of himself in Deuteronomy 10, 17. says, For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God, who is not partial and takes no bribe. Um, Goliath was described a mighty man. So it was used for giant or big people as well. Um... So this mighty man who was a rebel was also known as a hunter. He was such a good hunter that there was, a, there was a saying that said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. So he was well known for being a hunter. And after the flood, now people were allowed meat to eat meat, animals would eat meat, and slowly everyone dispersed across the world, even the, uh, even the animals. And so I, you can imagine when you have two or three tigers roaming around and they've got massive territories that they live in or ranges that every now and then they would maybe get a bit hungry and see a little baby or see people and people weren't quite as um, 
capable of defending themselves as lions or something else. So there was a danger that came from animals, especially because animals were now afraid of people. So whenever you're afraid of something, you will either attack or run away. And um, it seems that they were a danger. So Nimrod was a hunter. He was probably protecting his own people, which, which wouldn't be surprising. He was in a way a protector and a provider for the people who lived with him. And maybe that's how he managed to gather many people because he was a mighty hunter. He knew how to kill wild animals and he knew how to protect his people. And so he gathered people around him and he became a king and started to build a city that we all know even today. In verse 10 it says, The beginning of his kingdom was Babel. Um, he went on to build eight cities in total that we know of, and he was, he was a mighty man. In that time to build eight cities, I think is quite impressive. He didn't have a workforce that he could just give the plants to and they would work, but um, he had to actually make people work. It is quite likely that he also was involved in the building of the Tower of Babel. Many um, Jewish traditions hold that he was the actual instigator and architect and so on of the Tower of Babel which would fit with his character and his name. Um, and names in the Bible have meanings a lot of the time. Nowadays, names are just um, a code for somebody. If I know Davis. I know when I say Davis Seahorn, that's the guy with the beard at the front. <laughs> when, I, when, I, when I say his name, he knows that I mean him. It gets more tricky when you have different people who have the same names. Like some of my friends are called Paul. So whenever somebody says Paul, then you've got three or four heads turning your way. So we have to kind of distinguish. Um, if any of you know Elon Musk, he has a baby that nobody knows how to pronounce his name. When you read it, you kind of need an instruction with it how to pronounce it because it's got weird sounds in it, it's got numbers in it. But he takes the approach, a name is just a code for a person. Well, the Bible doesn't do that. The Bible has, um, most of the names in the Bible have actually meanings. And um, again, an interesting study is researching the names of the cities that um, Nimrod built. Um, I won't go into all of them because some are a bit fishy. I'm not sure where to go because there's different scholars who say different things. And so, yeah, I didn't want to present something here as truth and this is the the scriptural truth and as a matter of fact it might be just some people reading stuff into the word but what i what we know is that um, the word babel is quite clear in its meaning um, it's got two meanings the gate of god or mixing and confusing and that fits with the city that what happened there we know that the tower of babel is the gate to god they tried to get to god and also they started mixing um, idolatry into the worship and Babel will be and continue or Babel will be there and continue to be um, Babylon and we know Babylon is always a kind of a counterpiece to um, Jerusalem in some ways and it goes on uh, so the city of Babel stays all the way until we get to Revelations and Revelations 19 that's when it finally will be destroyed and um, if you want to know what Babel means or what Babel st Babylon stands for, then just read the last three, uh, 
read chapter 17, 18, and 19 of Revelation, and you'll get a very good picture of what Babel, Babel was for. Now, Revelation 19, verse 2 says, He has condemned the great prostitute who corrupted the earth by her adulteries. Before that, it's, it speaks about her Babylon mixing wine that would make people mad. So we've got this uh, meaning of mixing, of confusing, of um, drawing people away from, from God. So Nimrod built many other cities. Another city that he built, once he was finished with his, build, uh, with his cities in Shinar, he left and conquered the land of Assyria and he built Nineveh. And Nineveh is also a town that we know, a city, a city of great horrors. And the city was so bad that Jonah was willing to die rather than go there and tell them about the judgment for them. So you can imagine how, how bad that was for the Israelites. So Nimrod, Nimrod the rebel started all this by going against God and taking lots of people with him. So the other guy that gets a special mention is called Peleg. He doesn't have quite as much text with him as uh, Nimrod. But um, when you go down to verse 25, it says, To Eber were born two sons. One, uh, the one of... Oh. The, one name, the name of the one was Peleg, for in his days the earth was divided. His brother's name was Joktan. So Peleg is a man that we know even less about. But what we know is that he is a son of Eber, who was a son of Shelah, a son of Arpashad, uh, and a son of Shem, a son of Noah. And as I said earlier, the, the children of Eber would turn into Hebrews at some point, or the name Hebrew would develop from that. Again, there's much debate about, um, about Peleg as well. What, what does it mean the earth was divided? Um, there's, there's different theories about it. First of all, let's have a look at what the name Peleg means. The name Peleg comes from div division. It can either be a division or the Hebrew language would later use it as a water course, so the course of a river or, or something else. And it's only used a few times in, its, in the form that is here, and it's usually to do with some kind of division and some, something with, to do with water. And some suggest that Peleg was born when Noah divided the country up. Some believe that Noah actually, um, I don't know if he got a message or however by lot, divided up the, the country to his sons and says, so all Japheth and your sons come to me. This is your place, this is your place, this is where you go, this is where you go. Um, kind of like um, Joshua did when he divided up the country of Israel after they... Um, conquered it. Uh, some suggest that the, the continental plates broke sometime around when Peleg was born and then drifted apart. Um, others suggest that it is the dispersion of, of the people after the Tower of Babel and the division of the people by, um, by languages. We can't say for sure what exactly happened and why the people, um, why, the, why the earth divided. But we know that um, when it did, the people finally went and filled the earth. So some of them had to have stayed around Babel until God had to move them on 
And um, I just want to touch on two, on, on two of the main theories, probably, why he was called Peleg, and you can make up your own um, ideas from that or do your research. Again, you can find very interesting things there, very misleading things as well. So those who hold the view that um, in the days of Peleg, the continents broke apart and start to drift away from each other, argue the point that uh, Peleg, the name the, has a connotation with water and breaking. So they would say it's probably that they broke apart and then water appeared between the continents. And if you take the continents and put them together, they do look like a puzzle. And there's water that separates them, like America and Africa and Oceania. Um, and they would say that the word used for the earth broke apart here is a different one used from the word that um, is used in, in the next chapter when it says the whole earth spoke one language. So they would go into um, word, worldly details and stuff. Yeah, we don't know. The other one is uh, the division according to languages. Others would say that if God did break, the, if the land masses would break, there would have been massive tsunamis and yeah, it might have created a worldwide flood again and God said the world will never be destroyed by a flood again. So who knows what actually happened. Um, we don't know, but we know that the people separated and went out and uh, filled the earth. So what can we take away from this passage today? Maybe up to now you can take a few um, information about different people and and things and some theories but let's try and um, focus and see what we can actually learn from this passage I think what we can take away is that God always keeps his promise and God wants us how to God wants us to know how this world began and it, and all that is recorded here is necessary for us to see that God will keep his promise that he made in Genesis 3:15. When he, when he said, I will put enmity between you, that's Satan, and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. You will crush her, uh, he will crush your head, but you will strike his heel. God was keeping his promise, and his promised deliverer was still on the way. So even though most people were wiped out, Noah and his sons would be part of that. And we've seen in the few, past few months that people put their hopes into their kids and into people, but they were all disappointed over and over again. It's like um, Eve put her hope into Cain. Cain didn't turn out to be the deliverer. People put their hopes into Noah. He didn't turn out to be the deliverer. Not even Shem or any of his sons were the promised deliverer. But the Bible will keep following the line of, um, of the promised deliverer. And we see that even in this table of nations. When at the end it kind of homes in onto Eva. Which would be then the Hebrews. And we know that Jesus came through the line of of that line. Um, it may not be crucial for us today to know all these things, to look at the table of nations and it's like, well, what does this have to do with Jesus apart from that he came through that? We don't really need to know all this. But um, if we go back to the time when it was written and read, it was crucial because your heritage was crucial. Where did you come from? Especially for the Jews. Where did we come from? What, what happened? So nowadays, lineage is, doesn't really matter unless you're a royal and then people look and try and trace you back to who knows what. But nowadays, we don't need to know. 
But what we can know is that God keeps his promises. And even in times of um, people like Nimrod, who was a mighty tyrant, a hunter of men and land, God kept watch over the line that Jesus would come from. And we can look back in amazement how God kept his people safe all the time. What we can also learn is that we need to follow God's commandments. God had told Noah and his family to be fruitful and fill the earth, and they refused. Instead, they decided to, uh, it was better to live together and live proud and arrogant lifestyles. And uh, they were completely wrong in that. And then God did something unexpected. He used the tyranny of Nimrod to disperse the people across the whole continent, across the whole earth, by punishing them with confusing the languages. Also, the thing that I want to mention here is that God is in the business of reuniting the earth. Not physically. He's not going to put the puzzle back together and say, okay, we're all one happy family. But in the days of Peleg, the earth was divided. And it's regardless of the fact whether it was the actual landmass that moved or it was just the languages, people moved away. They couldn't communicate. And um, in these possibly harsh environments, they became enemies. And even today, we see nations that are enemies. We, don't, we just need to look into the TV. Um, we see tensions in Ukraine and Russia. The US and Russia always have tensions, as long as I've lived anyway. The Middle East is always tense. The Far East, Myanmar is a ticking time bomb. So there's always tension between, uh, tensions between nations. And even in my short time that I've lived in the UK, I found out that the Scots and the English are quite <laughs> tense as well. Yeah, my father-in-law would turn off the, um, the, the national anthem whenever it came up for the English because he's Scottish. <laughs> and he feels like he's a cross-cultural minister because he, he lives in, the, in England. But um, God's in the business of breaking down walls and fences. And um, I just want to read a passage from Ephesians 2, from 11 to 22, if you want to turn there. It's a, bit, it's a longer passage. Ephesians 2, from 11 to 22. Therefore, remember that at one time when you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcised by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenant, uh, covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who made us both one and has broken down, his flesh, uh, broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of his hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross and thereby killing the hostility and he came and preached peace where, to you who were far off and peace to those who were near for those him uh, for through him we both have access to one spirit to the of the father uh, so then in, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, 
built on the foundation built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows in a temple in to a holy temple in the Lord in him you also are built together into a dwelling place for God by the holy spirit so th the whole nations, the whole world was separated here. The people were separated, but God is bringing us all together. And the, it is a mystery, and it's one, one of the greatest mysteries, that God is joining everyone together into one nation, if you will. <coughs> God is blessing all nations through Jesus, the promised deliverer, the seed of Abraham, who was in turn the seed of Shem, and the offspring of the woman. And despite the mess that we humans make, God is still in control and God is saving people. How does it apply to our lives? I've got two applications today. So one for those who are in the family of God, so believers who um, trust Him, and one for those who aren't. Now there was a lot of history, a lot of information that I shared today, and a lot of it probably won't stick, and that's okay. Um, because much of it doesn't have direct relevance to us today in our daily lives. I don't need to know who all the sons of Goma were to live my daily life. But um, where am I here? So a lot of it won't stick, but we can take away that God is in control and God keeps his promises. And I think for those of us who are in God's family, um, it is reassuring to read this and see that God keeps his promise. God keeps um, the line um, of, his, of his promised deliverer. And we can rest assured in him that he will hold the future because he's shown us in the past. An old Bible school teacher of mine said, God has a perfect record of faithfulness and he's not going to waste it on you. <coughs> Sorry. Um, maybe a, a, an application for those who aren't in God's family. I don't know how many of you don't count themselves into God's family. Or maybe you don't walk that way. Um, maybe you're still living in the ways of Nimrod. Maybe not quite as boisterous as him. You're not hunting animals down and people and build cities. But we still want to be our own lords. We still want to be do what we want to do. It's the day of today you do you be warned there's judgment and god will not tolerate messing around forever he will not tolerate mixing and the bad influence of babylon forever and at one point it will be over with it um, the bible says in hebrews 9:27, just as is appointed for man to die once after that comes judgment so you only have one life, and at the end of it, there will be judgment. And everything that you've ever done will be judged. The judge will not be like a human like me, uh, who's got his own problems, who's got his own skeletons in the basement. But it will be the perfect God who made this world, who cannot tolerate any wrong. There's nothing that we can hide from him. He knows everything. And he's everywhere present at all times. So he's a witness to everything that you've ever done in your life. And he's the one who gave us the rules. So a good way of testing whether you would stand in this judgment or not um, 
is just having a look at the Ten Commandments that he gave us. Most people know the Ten Commandments. And ask yourself a question. Have you ever told a lie? Well, you don't have to tell me. Um, I don't need to know if you've ever lied or not. Um, but it, what do you call somebody who told a lie? A liar. And I'm a liar. I admit it openly. Have you ever stolen anything? Even if it's just a little thing? Taking something that wasn't yours? What do you call somebody who's a, who's a, who steals? A thief. Have you ever used God's name as a curse word? That's blasphemy. So, a blasphemer. Have you ever, ever looked at a person with lust? And Jesus says that even if we just look at a person with lust, we've already committed adultery in our hearts. And what do you call somebody who does adultery, commits adultery? An adulterer. So that was only four of the commandments that we've looked at. And I have to admit myself that I'm a lying thief and a blaspheming adulterer at heart. That's what I am as a person. And I would never stand before a holy judge. I could never defend myself before him. And if I would be judged, that would only be, be just. But there's a loophole, and that loophole is Jesus Christ. And he paid my penalty. He, he gave his life as a payment for all the wrong things that I've done. He gave his life as a free gift so that anybody can receive, um, can receive it by trusting him. Sorry, that sense didn't make sense. He gave his life so that we can receive a free gift. We can go free. He is the promised deliverer who would crush the snake's head. He would bring people back to God. He, he basically paid the tickets for us to go back to God. We just have to take him and use him. And the passage from Hebrews doesn't stop where I stopped. It goes on, um, and I read the whole verse, a uh, sentence now. Hebrews 9, verse 27, 28. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins for many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. So if you trust God, if you take his gift, and you, then you can wait for his return and be excited for a time without sin and without, without suffering, an eternity with God who is perfect and who loves you so much that he gave his only son to die for you so you can live, spend eternity with him forever. Don't miss out on this opportunity. You don't know when your last day will be. And a warning, don't live like Nimrod. Don't live a life of rebellion. Turn from your pride and your arrogance. Come back to the one who made you and who loves you. And I'd like to finish with a quote from Warren Wearsby um, on, on this passage. And he says, Noah's three sons left a mixed legacy to the world, but the Lord of nations was still in charge, and history is still his story. Just let me pray. Our Father, we thank you that you love us. We thank you for your word and we thank you for this passage that is um, difficult to read, but not just because of the names, but because it's difficult to take anything from it that would be edifying or helpful for us. But we pray that we would um, seek your face and we pray that we would not live as uh, Nimrod did in pride, 
mixing idolatry and his own ideas into worship. We pray that we would be living um, faithfully and that um, we would follow you. We thank you that you're faithful, that you kept the line of Shem, the line of um, his sons, all the way to Jesus. And we thank you that we can trust you, that you are faithful, that you keep your word, that you keep the promises that you make. And I pray that what was said today, that what I made up and what I came up with, that if it wasn't yours, that it would disappear and people will forget about it. But what will be remembered will be your word and, and your thoughts. Thank you that you love us, that you bless us, and that you um, give us everything we need. Amen.